Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for your love for us, for your care for us. We thank you that we can gather here in this place and worship together. We can see each other that... And that now we get to open your word together and we pray that as we do that your spirit would move to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and soft hearts to receive what you have for us. And we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, tonight brings to a close our series through the book of Acts. Um, we have been in Acts in four, in four parts, but over the last 20 months, and so almost two years together in this journey, um, and along the way, I think it was, it's something like 53 weeks that we've preached through this book, um, and so today brings it to a close. And Acts has been, it's always bittersweet for me when we end a series, because, um, because it's, I'm excited about what's to come, and we'll have an announcement for that hopefully by next week. I'm excited to be able to, about what we've seen, and I've enjoyed the study, but also hard to leave behind the journey that we've been on through this book that was written for us. Um, Acts in particular is helpful because it shows us the establishment and the foundations of the early church. And so um, with whatever views or perspectives we might have about what the church might be or what Christianity might be, the book of Acts shows us the foundations. And for us as a church, it's something we want to be able to come back to, to see how this connects then to what we are called to in 2019 here in D.C., and so we have seen that God is writing a story, and we're a part of it. Now, as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've taken it in four pieces. And so because this closes out the series, we're going to do a little review to remind you of where we've been. We began with um, Acts 1 to 7, and called it Beginnings. I feel like some of you may have just realized that the logo changed for each one of the four parts as that hit the screen. <laughs> um, thank you to Josh Clark and our design team, and Noah, I think those two worked on this um, for us two years ago as we were dreaming up the series. Um, and so you'll see, I think, the, the importance of how this fits into what the themes were in these four sections. So the first seven chapters were about the beginnings of the early church. Now, Jesus ascended to heaven, and so, so Luke, our author, um, wrote to us two parts, two volumes of his work. And in that, he, Luke was a historian, he was a medical doctor, and he told us the reason that he wrote to us. In his gospel, Luke, he said he wrote an orderly account so that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so he wrote these things so that we could be assured of the things that happened. He said these are eyewitness accounts from the people that saw them in person. And he wrote an ordered history. And so Luke was his it was a, a, a collation of all of the eyewitness accounts about Jesus' life and ministry. Ultimately, his arrest in Jerusalem and his death, his resurrection on the third day. And Acts, as it begins... He picks the story up and says, I've already dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And in Acts chapter 1, as the book begins, it begins with an account of Jesus talking to his disciples, and he said to them, stay here in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and where else, church? To the ends of the earth. And so we've followed that through the book of Acts, that the first section, the first seven chapters, are really focused on Jerusalem. 
And so we see Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes on the fearful followers of Jesus who are locked in a room, and they go out into the streets in boldness, speaking in all kinds of languages they didn't know, and everyone who heard them, people gathered from all over the, the known world, were there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, or celebrate Pente- the Feast of Pentecost, and so they heard the apostles in their own language. You might remember that, that people were, it was a little bit chaotic and people were confused and they accused them of, they were like, these guys are just drunk. And Peter said, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. But the Spirit of God was poured out. And we saw from there that, that the Spirit of God empowered God's people to fulfill Jesus' mission. And, and Peter, Peter's ministry in particular, in, as he and John healed a crippled beggar in the temple courts and began to preach and heal people, and they faced opposition from religious leaders, and they were imprisoned. And then we saw in chapter 7 the boldness of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, as he was killed for proclaiming Christ. But it was the beginnings of the church. In section two, beginning in chapter eight then, we saw that the word spread. Persecution took root in Jerusalem after the, after the death of Stephen that was presided over by a man named Saul that wanted to destroy the church. And his work made it so that the church scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, but along the way that fulfilled Jesus' commission on them to be his witnesses first in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. So you saw Philip bring the gospel to the Samaritans. We saw Philip meet with the Ethiopian man along the roadside and baptize him on the spot. We saw that the church's greatest enemy, this man named Saul, was confronted on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself, was struck blind and was called to be his witness and converted in a moment. And then we followed his journey as Paul throughout the rest of Acts. We saw the gospel go out to the Gentiles through Peter, as he was given a vision from, G- from God himself where, where Peter didn't, w- didn't want to mix with Gentiles, for Jewish people to mix with and eat meals with Gentiles would have made them unclean ceremonially. And so, so God came to Peter in a vision and a sheet was lowered from the heavens containing all kinds of animals. God said, Peter, look, take and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, I'm not, I've never eaten anything unclean. He came to him a second time and said, look, Peter, look, take and eat. And, and still Peter was like, no way. It was Peter saying, I don't want the bacon. I don't want the pulled pork. Keep it away from me. And God said, no, don't call anything unclean that I've declared clean. A third time and finally that set things up so that Peter was able to make the leap and see that, that he could go and be with Cornelius. And Cornelius' family became Christians and the spirit descended on them and the gospel broke out to the Gentiles for the first time. Section three showed us the gospel going to the nations as Paul and Barnabas were set aside in chapter 13 to be sent out from the church in Antioch. And so we followed their missionary journeys through what is modern day Turkey and and through Greece as they they went out proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ to the Jews and proclaiming the resurrection of Christ to all people. We saw the Jerusalem Council where the church had to wrestle with the, the cultural barriers between Jew and Gentile and, and make decisions about how much those barriers were going to keep people from the true church and true faith and what it looked like to, that God really had opened up the doors for the nations to be a part of his family. And we saw the word continue to spread across the nations. And that we've been in section four and seeing the, the story continues. 
As this last section, chapters 21 to 28 of the book of Acts, detailed Paul's journey to Jerusalem and his imprisonment. And we've seen five rounds of questioning and looking ahead to Rome. And then he gets on this this journey by ship and ends up shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And even when he gets to Malta, we saw last time that that a snake jumps out of the woodpile and clings onto his hand. And so in the midst of all of that, he finally arrived in Rome. And today we come to the final closing section of that chapter. And we see what Paul's ministry looked like in Rome, and what we can see in this text is that the story that God is writing continues, and we can see something of our part in that story. And so that's what we have in Acts chapter 28. If you can open your Bibles with me there, it'll also be on the screen. And beginning in verse 17, this is what we read. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews... And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for, for with regard to this sect, we know that, it is everywhere, that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so Paul here, as he settles into Rome, he's longed to get to Rome. He, is, he wrote his letter that is in our New Testament, Romans, one of his, his theological and ethical masterpiece to the people in Rome. He's finally there, and he takes three days to recuperate, and, and, and after three days, he meets with the Jewish leaders. He calls them together, and I love this. He calls them together to say, hey, let me tell you how I got here, because you've probably heard about me. And up to this point in the book of Acts, we would have expected that they would have heard about Paul, because we've seen in other cities that his reputation preceded him, and that he was run out of cities at times before he could even get started. But here, they say to him, like, brother, we've never heard of you. Like we've, we've heard nothing about you. We've spoken no evil about you. We have nothing, we've heard nothing of your, your reputation. But yeah, this little group you're talking about, this sect of Judaism, we have heard about that. So tell us more. So Paul gets a chance to hear from them. He brings them back the next day. There's a greater number that come. And we see here the way that he approached his ministry to the Jewish people in Rome. Now remember, 
Every city that Paul went into, he would look first to the Jewish people, his own people, who, because he said he was theologically convinced that salvation was first to the Jews. He was, these are the people who had the fullness of the Hebrew Bible, what in our Bible is the Old Testament. And Paul would want, in every place, pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He went in and said, this is what the whole story is about. The Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David we've been waiting for has come, and, we, and so he was proclaiming here the hope of Israel, and so that's where he'd begin. And in almost every place, he'd be, some would receive it, some would reject it, and so it was a mixed thing, just as what we see here is. And so th then Paul turns to the Gentiles, and we hear a, a short description of his ministry to them. But one of the things that strikes me that I think is strange is that we've been walking through this, this epic book of Acts, and when you combine it with Luke, these two volumes of one book, incredible storylines, incredible history that's been detailed, told compellingly, and it kind of feels like it ends anticlimactically, doesn't it? Like, so Paul was there for two years. People came over to his house, and he continued to teach. You go, yeah, and? You go, is that it? Like we, we've seen him shipwrecked, we've seen him beaten with rocks, we've seen him snake bit, like, he just was hanging out and teaching people in his home, and that's how this thing ends. I think there's a reason for that, and we'll come back to it. Because along the way, what we see here is we see Paul's approach to the Jewish leaders and to the Gentiles in the city, and for us, I, this can be helpful because this can inform, for us, what ministry looks like to the religious and to the irreligious. And I think there's crossover for us. So let's talk about ministry to the religious first. His focal point between the two groups of people is entirely different. To the Jewish people, with a common background and understanding of scripture together, he focuses on theology. And so the ministry to the religious is theologically driven. And, and here, he, he brings the gospel to the religious by first, we see there, in verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came at his lodging in greater numbers, so they come over to where he's staying, and from morning till evening, what did he do? He expounded to them that he opened up God's word, scripture, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And so that's what he spent his time doing. So ministry to the religious, first of all, means that we expound scripture. Paul spent time in the Hebrew Bible here, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, explaining and pointing to Jesus, saying all of this finds its fulfillment in him. Everything points to him, and all of Scripture points to him. And Scripture itself is sufficient for our salvation. So he was showing them from their own Scriptures that Christ is the Savior. Paul said this to a young pastor, Timothy. He backed up his own approach. He said, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So Paul here is reliant on Scripture and willing to expound Scripture to them and trust that that will open their eyes to be able to see what God has done for them in Christ, that he, this is the hope of Israel. Now, I think for us, maybe we hear this, we go, well, this is different. I mean, how, do we, how does this cross over to us? But... There is a reality, this is, this is something, uh, particularly for those of you who grew up around the church, or have been in the church for a long time, is that at times we don't realize how much our religiosity does not actually reflect the gospel, and our understanding might not reflect Christ. And we don't, we don't get as reliant on expounding scripture, understanding and wrestling with and interpreting God's word as we ought to. And this shows up because, I mean, if it shows up anywhere, it shows up on social media 
where we see meme-driven Christianity like crazy. You can take verses and rip them out of context and make, it say, make Scripture say whatever you want, but that's not expounding Scripture. I thought it'd be fun to have an example. Like this. This could be really encouraging to you. And he said to him, To you I will give all authority in their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. It's like, nice, it makes you feel good. God wants our prosperity, right? Do you know who said that? Satan. The devil. To Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, written by the same author who wrote Acts, the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and the devil comes to tempt him. In the second temptation, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus actually expounds scripture and says, no, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So we need to be careful to do a careful expounding of scripture and not just take our own ideologies and perspectives and slap Christian language onto it. And Paul was willing to meet with the religious and confront their idolatry and ideology, which we'll see next. And he did so beginning by saying, look at the text itself and thank God for the New Testament because what the New Testament shows us is how the apostles interpreted the Hebrew Bible text. Because when, when Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. Timothy wasn't taking that and going, oh, this letter that Paul wrote to me is included there. He was, he was talking about the Hebrew Bible, that that alone is sufficient to point to and prove Christ. So he's saying all of that has been breathed out by God. Now, we would include the New Testament, but in that, what, what Paul was saying is, listen, the promise made to Abraham that all the families of the earth be blessed through God has come to his fullness in Christ. Even the promise back to Noah that God's wrath would be removed and never poured out in its fullness on humanity has come to its fullness in Christ. The promise to Moses that, that God's people would be delivered from their chains and be a kingdom of priests came to its fullness in Christ. And ultimately the promise of an anointed one, a Messiah, a son of David to rule and reign as king has come to its fullness in Christ. And so ministry to the religious means we dig in and expound scripture to expose what God's word says for us because it is sufficient for us. Second means we bear witness to the kingdom of God. That's the second thing Paul does. He testifies to the kingdom of God. That means he stood as a personal witness. It's a courtroom term. And so he gives his testimony about God's kingdom. Now a little bit of context here is, is gonna be helpful for us. In AD 50, the Edict of Claudius expelled Jews from Rome. In Divius Claudius 25, the quote is that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Paul arrived in Rome in AD 60, likely in February of 60 AD. He's, this is just 10 years after the Jews were expelled from Rome, and what were they expelled for? the instigation of this guy, Crestus. And so he was stepping into a cultural climate that there was a Jewish sect of Christians that the entire culture of the city was postured against. Testifying to the kingdom of God would have been a dangerous approach, and this was the same thing that got Jesus killed under Pontius Pilate, a Roman leader. And so here, 
for him to step in and say, hey, look at scripture, this is what scripture says, and a king has come, and this is what his kingdom looks like, for his hearers would have put them in political and personal danger in the place that they lived. But Paul wasn't gonna hold back because he was testifying to the, true, the one true king. And, it, but listen to this. We've seen all the way through Acts that Christ's kingdom is subversive. That it, it stands, it, it's going to confront at some point every ruler of this earth because the proclamation is that Jesus died as a sacrifice for all people. That he was raised from death to life and that he ascended to God's throne. He didn't just resuscitate to die again. He ascended to heaven where he now reigns and rules as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. And so to claim that and believe that means that he will confront necessarily every kingdom of this world and that there's no king in this world, no ruler in this world that represents him fully. And so to proclaim that in any context means that your life will be drastically impacted by it. But... Here, it could have meant life or death for his hearers. For us, though, the kingdom of Christ is no less subversive. Can you imagine what it would look like if with consistency, I'm not saying individuals or you necessarily, because maybe you're great at this, but can you imagine what it would look like and how things would change if Christians were known to stand outside of their own ideologies, able to critique them. You imagine if the reputation of Christians, of Christian Republicans, of Christian Democrats, was that they were the first to critique their own party's shortcomings and for the good of the nation and the party. To be able to stand and say, this part is wrong, it does not fit with what is good for people, it does not fit ethically. If, we, if Christians were able to apply the values and ethics of Christ's kingdom in their work, for the good of all people, instead of reshaping the way we approach our theology and reshaping the way we approach God's word and reshaping what Christianity ought to be in order to fit ideological lines. Now, what it means is, I mean, what we see instead too often, at least in the public sphere, is Christians that reshape what their approach to faith is in order to fit the party lines because it's politically expedient. But there's an open secret that it would be too costly for too many people, that it's in, in their employment, in their influence. And the wrestling that we have, and for those of you that wrestle through that actively in your work, this isn't new. We can relate to the hesitancy of the people that Paul was speaking to. Because it's hard to stand against the, the drive of the culture that we're in. And the kingdom of Jesus was offensive in AD 50 when that edict was issued. It was offensive in AD 60 when Paul showed up in Rome, and it is offensive now, almost 2,000 years later. But if we expound scripture, eventually that's going to lead us to see and bear witness to the kingdom of God. Third, ministry to the religious means we work to convince people about Jesus. Paul's entire ministry and life was about Jesus and only Jesus. This is why he writes in Philippians, while he's imprisoned and while he's in chains, he says, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, as long as I'm here, it means more Jesus for everybody that's around me. And if I get killed, that's better for me because I gain from it and I get to be with Jesus. He was about Jesus in life and in his death. 
And even when he was wrongly imprisoned as an innocent man for two years in Caesarea under, um, under Felix, the governor, even there when Felix would pull him in expecting bribes from Paul, Paul's response was, I'm not going to give you money, but I'm going to give you more Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Everything for him was fixated on proclaiming and convincing people about Jesus. It, the religious need to be convinced of the sufficiency of Christ uniquely. And so again, maybe for, for you, you need to hear this today because it, there's, you need to be convinced that religious people need to hear these things. Maybe for you, some of you may need to hear this today because you've grown up around church your whole life and it's hard week after week to be reminded that Jesus is the king. We get it stuck in some pragmatics of whether or not he's working for us this week. And as we preach Jesus, we can expect a mixed response even from the most religious. Now Paul here quotes Isaiah the prophet to these people. And this, this quote comes from Isaiah's call to, where, where there's this dramatic scene in Isaiah chapter six that, that where Isaiah's in the temple and he has a vision of the temple and it says the whole, the, the temple itself is shaking and it's filled with smoke and he sees the Lord's throne and the seraphim circling the throne and crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And so he, the, he sees the scene and Isaiah is wrecked. He's broken in the presence of God. And he says, woe to me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I've come from a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And so an angel comes with a hot coal from the altar and touches it to his lips to cleanse him. And he hears the voice of God say, well, who will go for us? Who will I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. And I think often when we hear about Isaiah's calling, if you've heard that preach, we, like, we often stop there because we want to say, if we have a vision of who God is, it's going to expose our sin. But when God cleanses us of our sin, it motivates us to go on his mission. And so we hear that and we can say, yes, here am I, Lord, send me. But then we forget that what Isaiah was called to. God called him to what Paul quotes here. He says, go and preach. He says, Isaiah, I'm going to send you to preach to people that will never listen to you. Listen, I, as a guy that spends a lot of time preaching on a week-in and week-out basis, this kind of thing is terrifying to me. I, to be told, like, hey, go and preach, but the people will hear, but they will never understand. They'll see, but they'll never perceive. Their hearts will be dull. They won't be able to hear with their ears. They won't be able to see with their eyes. They've closed them. They're not going to listen to anything you have to say. But go and preach, Isaiah. And Paul quotes this. And what, what Isaiah, what God was quoting to Isaiah comes from Psalm 115. In Psalm 115 we read, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear and noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel and feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound within their throat. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. See, God was telling Isaiah that the people of Israel at, this, at that point in history had embraced idolatry and turned away from him and so God was releasing them to their idols. And now Paul is identifying the same in, this, in that generation, in AD 60. And this is the danger for those of you who've grown up around the church. That proximity to God's word and proximity to hearing about his kingdom and proximity 
to God's people in his church does not mean that it has taken root within your soul. There's a danger that you can hear about the things of God and and learn about them and have a cognitive understanding of them and that still you choose to embrace separate worship that will shape your life and close your eyes and dull your ears and dull your heart so that you aren't actually sensitive to the movement of God's spirit in your life. Be careful. But some were convinced as well. This is why today I prayed as we began and so often do, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and and hearts to receive what you have for us because our only hope is that his spirit moves in us that way. And Paul here turned to the Gentiles. Even this passage shows us some of Isaiah's vision for the restoration of God's people though. Isaiah had looked ahead to a time that salvation would arrive in Jerusalem, which Luke shows us in his gospel. A time, and then that the exiles would be gathered in, which we see at Pentecost, and that God's word would go out to the nations, which we continue to see here. And so Paul turns, and if if rejected by the religious, we also can turn to the irreligious in our city. And so with the time we've got left, we're going to look at that. Ministry to the irreligious. And so while ministry to the religious, Paul focused primarily and first on theologically. Ministry to the irreligious, Paul's focus isn't first theology, but it's first hospitality. And so this is what he, he says, the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And it says that he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so... Three aspects of his ministry to the irreligious. First, live where God has placed you. Paul was in Rome for two years at his own expense. We don't learn in the New Testament what happened to him after that. Tradition tells us that, that he, after the two years in Rome, was released and ended up going out in ministry again. Some would say he made it as far west as Spain. And then that he got arrested again and was returned to Rome where he was beheaded. Um, maybe. Um, we, that's, that's history and tradition, but we can say confidently that we know he at least spent two years in Rome. Again, it feels like the book kind of ends at a low point. But here, look at what he did while he was there. He lived where, he, where God had put him, and it was at his own expense. And he welcomed anybody who was there. Hospitality is expensive. It's expensive financially, emotionally, in our energy, and Let's face it, some of you have decided that you are gonna stay in D.C., whether you've grown up here, whether you've come to this place, and that's an expensive, it is a costly decision. Financially, because of cost of living here, but also there are other costs to that decision. But whether you're here and you've decided that this is where your roots are gonna be, or whether you're here and already looking toward a move that you know is coming, I wanna encourage you today, call you today, don't look at your time here as an accident, and don't look at it as a pause from the rest of your life. And believe that God has put you where he has, when he has, for a reason. Paul believed this. He preached in Acts chapter 17 that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from every one of us. Paul believed that there is no coincidence for for the Christian, that for any of us, that that God has put us where he has so that we would seek him and find him. That I don't think it's an accident that you're sitting here tonight. 
to hear God's word proclaimed, to sing his word, to hear it read at different points, to pray together. I believe that God will work in some of your hearts by his spirit tonight, and that that's not a coincidence. But where you live where God has placed you, invest where God has placed you. Peter says this in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, you're sojourners, you're exiles in this world, but live your lives so well that other people will see the way that you live and turn and worship and glorify Jesus in the end. And this goes, and, and, and calling us sojourners and exiles, Peter is really looking back to Jeremiah chapter 29, where, where the prophet Jeremiah wrote God's word to the people of Israel in Babylon, in exile. And God's word to them was, was, I am the one that sent you into exile, and while you're there, God says, invest into the good of the city. Because in its welfare, you'll find your own welfare. He says, build houses, plant gardens, cultivate things there. Have, you know, have children and have your children get married. Be fruitful and multiply. Invest into the good of that city because in its good, you'll find your own good as well. So listen, some of you may love DC and it's captured your heart. Some of you, I know because I've heard you, feel like you're in exile in this place. But again, if you're a Christian, and strictly speaking, we don't believe in coincidence. God has put you here now. It's not an accident. So invest in the good of the city. Enjoy it. Enjoy some of the good things our city has to offer. But don't fall into merely enjoying what you can get out of it. Actually do something for the good of this place. So first, live where God has placed you. Second, welcome all who come into your life. This is the true essence of hospitality. And I think we get this kind of flipped up in our minds sometimes. I mean, what do you think of when you think of hospitality? Some of you might give me the theological answer that I'm looking for, but I think most of the time we think about like people in our lives that host really nice meals or put on a good event. Gosh, that person's so gifted with hospitality. We think, and, and, and I think often when we think about hospitality, we think about a couple of things. First, I think we think about fellowship which means we're around people that we know and like and are in relationship with already, and we enjoy being together, and when one person hosts them, we say, oh, thanks for your hospitality. But I think that, biblically, is more what would be defined as fellowship. And I think the second thing we think of is how Instagrammable our table arrangement is. Like, is the dish beautiful? Is it nice? Is it something that's pleasing to the eye and to the stomach? Maybe you think about hospitality that's not food. That seems to be what I come back to over and over again. Biblically, hospitality is welcoming strangers into family. Welcoming people who aren't like you and don't think like you and are hard for you to reach out to into community. Gracious hospitality is one of Redemption Hill's core values, and we say it this way, that Redemption Hill is a family that graciously welcomes people into loving community. At its core, the gospel is a celebration that welcomes all people into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Redemption Hill is a family that is generous, thoughtful, and warm, welcoming people into community and celebrating God's grace together. Paul here welcomes everybody who came to him. It wasn't that he just had a ministry to the religious, and it wasn't that he just had a ministry to the irreligious. It wasn't that he just had a ministry to people whose lifestyles lined up with the ethics that he held to and believed in. He, he welcomed everybody to come in, and in that showed real hospitality of welcoming strangers into his own home at his own expense, and he invested in Rome for two years. 
We need to hear, that. again, if you've grown up in the church, you need to hear this because so often when we think about what evangelism is, we think about evangelism as, all right, I have a tract and I go up to somebody and I have a cold conversation that feels super awkward and if that conversation goes well and I know enough information, then I'm gonna convince them to become a Christian and then I go, fantastic, now join me and come to church. And that can work and can happen. Maybe that's some of your stories. But often, but what if we, again, thought about things differently? And I think what we see more often in the New Testament is that people welcome people into the community of the church where they can experience the love and relationships of the family of God and, and hear God's word and hear people praying and see what real belief in a risen Lord and Savior looks like. And over time, that builds trust so that they can actually have conversations because it tears down the barriers of, that, that don't exist outside of, that, of those relationships so they can actually hear and have conversations that can open their hearts to, to see Jesus more clearly. That's biblical hospitality. And so church, let's, as a church family, continue to grow. I mean, this is something that I think Redemption Hill is a strength of our church. I don't think that core value is something that's just aspirational. I think that's, that's actual. But we can continue to grow in welcoming people in and, and celebrating together. And, and uh, then, within that, though, the third point, proclaim and teach Jesus without hindrance. You can be really good at living where you've been placed and welcoming everyone who comes into your life and never talk about Christ. And there are lots of examples of, of groups of people that are really good at living where they've been placed and welcoming people in their lives that have no connection to anything Christian. I did CrossFit for a year. It's almost cultish. And I loved it. My gym closed. I quit because my gym closed, not because I don't like it. Um, my gym closed and the other gyms were much more expensive. So I just, I'm not doing it now and sadly need to. <laughs> but it's amazing what's cultivated there because it's not just a workout plan. It, it's tapping into something that people need, of a need for community. And so you can walk in there, whether, whether you're somebody that's like CrossFit Games competitor that works out with your shirt off or somebody that would never take your shirt off, and you'll be welcomed in, and people, it's encouraging, and people come around you, and they try to plan things outside of workout times. It's not just a workout plan, because they've realized that people have a need, especially in major cities, for community. That when you're surrounded by people and no one actually knows who you are, that that can be the loneliest kind of place to be. And so we could do all kinds of things that gather people together and make them feel some kind of connectedness and some kind of community, but we have a uniqueness that, that as the church, we're not just trying to fill a need for community, we're trying to say, hey, we all need this, but there's something deeper to that need, because every one of us is, it feels unknown and unloved. And every one of us is terrified that if any human being ever came to know us fully, then there's no way they would love us. But we have this need and desire to be fully known and fully loved, and that can only come through Christ. That it, Jesus Christ shows us that God knows us and he loves us. That he's not scared of our guilt for the things that we've done. He's not, that our, the weight of shame that you carry in your life, whether things that you've done or things that have been done to you, is not too great for Christ to take for, for you. That, that Jesus calls every one of us and says, if you're weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. 
And, and the call comes to every one of us to fill the need we have to be known and to be loved and that we are also welcomed into a new family, that God as our Father looks at us and smiles over us and sings over us. And so we have hope to offer. And I think the reason Luke leaves us here with the apostle in chains for two years in Rome, this anticlimactic ending, and without any further detail about what goes on here, is I think it's actually the perfect ending because he's emphasizing a couple of things. First, that Paul is not the main character of Acts. I think we have a tendency to read Acts and think, well, the first half is basically about Peter and the second half is basically about Paul. And in the middle, there's some weird stuff that happens. And those are the main characters. But we've seen throughout our series and throughout this study that, that it's several key points through in chapter 6 and chapter 12 and chapter 19 that the main work in the book of Acts is that the word of God continued to increase and multiply. It was the advancement of God's word and his kingdom through the planting of churches that his gospel was advancing. Because remember, Jesus called his followers and said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and where church? To the ends of the earth. And so his word was continuing to advance, empowered by the spirit of God. That is the main character in Acts. And so here, the word of God is continuing to work, even through Paul's ministry in Rome, even with him in chains, the word of God was continuing to increase. And Jesus is the one by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. And so if we want to join God in his work in his world, it means that we will follow a risen savior. And so I think Luke lands it where he does with an anticlimactic ending because he's showing us that this story has not ended. If he would have taken us through Paul's death, then it would have given a clear impression. Well, that mission's over. But no, Paul was continuing to teach. And the story has continued for us. And we're a part of, Redemption Hill is a part of a, a church planting network called Acts 29. Acts 29 is a network of church planting churches that is global. We're in now 53 countries with 31 languages, with over 800 churches in the world. And I can't tell you how many times I serve in some leadership within Acts 29 network and how many times I've had somebody think that they've, they've got me in like a gotcha moment where they're like, hey, you ever notice there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts? Yes. <laughs> yes, I've noticed. <laughs> Um, spent a lifetime and have all kinds of formal training on one book in my life. I'm aware of the number of chapters. The reason it's called Acts 29 is because we don't believe the story has stopped. We believe that God is continuing to write it and that the primary way that the kingdom of Jesus Christ advances is by planting churches. And so our church invests heavily in planting churches because God is still writing that story. The same God who is sovereign in Acts is sovereign now. The same Jesus who is resurrected and ascended in Acts lives and reigns now. And the same spirit who moved through God's people moves in power now. The story is still being written. Now, church, next week is roughly Redemption Hill's eighth anniversary. And um, we realized that and we've planned nothing for it. <laughs> and so next week, if you come back, we will celebrate by singing together, by praying together, we're gonna to open up the Bible together and spend some time hearing the gospel proclaimed um, and eventually, we'll have, maybe at 10 years, we'll have a bigger party. <laughs> but in that, the story of Redemption Hill Church didn't start eight years ago. 
And so as we close out our series, I think it'd be appropriate to trace that story to us today. In AD 30, Pentecost, the Spirit of God descended on the people of God and the movement began. By 42 AD, the gospel made it to Egypt with the apostle Mark. By 49, it was brought to modern-day Turkey and Greece by the Apostle Paul, and by 52, it had reached India by the Apostle Thomas's ministry. By 174, the gospel had come into Austria, and by 350, nearly 32 million Christians existed in the Roman Empire. In 432, St. Patrick brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to Ireland. In 635, the first missionaries made it into China in 900 into Norway and Scandinavia. By 1200, the Bible was available in more than 20 languages. And by 15, in 1517, there was a spark lit that erupted the powder keg in Europe of the Reformation. In the years 1555 to 1562, in just a seven-year window, more than 200 churches were planted in France. In the 1700s, the Great Awakening swept the American colonies as, as the gospel took root in this, in this land. In 1801, the District of Columbia was, was formally organized. And in 1838, just 29 years later, a gospel witness was established at the corner of 4th and D Street Southeast, where we sit now, 181 years ago. Praise God for a continual gospel witness for 181 years in this place. In the 1880s, Scandinavian immigrants came together in Iowa to form an association of autonomous churches that in 1950, two movements merged to become the EFCA, of which Redemption Hill is a part. In 1960, Wayne and Betty Olson moved from Nebraska to start a church in their basement in Annandale, Virginia. In 1961, a year later, they were established as National Evangelical Free Church in Annandale. It was the first national project of the EFCA men's ministry that funded it, and they called Jerry Hall as their senior pastor, where he served for 20 years. In 1986, they called a young man that was fresh out of a PhD program at Cambridge in New Testament named Bill Kynes to be their senior pastor, and in 2006, changed their name to Cornerstone. That same year, in 2006, Cornerstone began praying that God would bring them somebody to plant a church and start a new church in the District of Columbia. And in 2010, four years later, they called me and my family to move out here. In 2011, a year later, Redemption Hill Church was born. And when we came here, there were no Acts 29 churches in the D.C. metro area. Now there are more than a dozen. In 2014, we were able to be a part of the start and launch and, and elder installation of Village Church in Belfast. Um, Pastor Lucas Parks preached here just a couple of weeks ago. In 2015, Village was given a building and they've continued to grow so that in 2018, they planted Village South Belfast with Andrew Elder, who they sent out. And in 2016, to back up a couple of years, Chewy, Pastor Chuy Rodriguez and Carla and their children moved to Mexico City, his hometown, to plant what would become Doxa, Iglesia Cristiana, a church that is thriving now under Pastor Eli Casares as Chu and Carla have come back and brought two more children with them <laughs> that are their own. <laughs> church, I say all this to be able to say the story continues. And what we are doing and what we are a part of is so much bigger than what we often realize. 
that we're a part of the story that God began writing in the book of Acts as we see the church established and the word spread and, and the gospel go out to the nations and, and the story continues through us today. We've got to remember that heritage and remember that the same spirit of God is moving. The same gospel that has been proclaimed for nearly 2,000 years is still true and still powerful and still brings us hope. And so we're part of God's work and he has called us to be his witnesses here in D.C. and throughout the metro area and to the ends of the earth. And so as we close the book of Acts, this doesn't close our, our realization and hopefully this series is only enhanced our appreciation for the story that God is writing and our part in it. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in this because this is your story. Would you give us hope in your sovereignty? Would you give us humility to realize that this is, that you are the author, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith and that it is, that he will build his church and we thank you and praise you that, that we get to be a part of it. We thank you and praise you for the part that Redemption Hill has been able to play in the story that you're writing. And would you help us to continue to faithfully pursue you, continue to faithfully proclaim the truth of the gospel and point directly to Jesus? Would you inspire us to, to show the kind of hospitality and intentionality that we see in the Apostle Paul in the text from today? And Father, we pray that you would bring revival to our city through our church, through other churches who faithfully proclaim Christ. We pray that you would help us to grow in our faith and in our boldness. We pray that even now as we turn to fellowship at your table together that, that you would bring us comfort and hope and peace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.